Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the American Enterprise Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome you here for today's event. We've got an all-star uh, panel for you and a great topic and a great speaker, and I'm looking forward to diving right in. Uh, my name is Ryan Streeter. I'm the Director of Domestic Policy Studies here at AEI, and uh, I'm glad that we can all be together uh, both in person and virtually for today's event, which is called The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It, which is the book title of Howard Hussock's new book, uh, which we'll be discussing today. Um, I'm pleased to have Howard as a colleague, as a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute after a long tenure at the Manhattan Institute in New York where he worked on uh, similar types of issues and themes related to municipal governance, urban policy, public housing, and related topics. What I'm gonna do is have Howard come up and um, give you the lay of the land from the book, walk through the thesis, give a presentation about what he's written, and then uh, we'll welcome our panelists uh, up to the stage as well. Uh, Vanessa Brown Calder, who is the staff director of the Joint Economic Committee here in Washington, D.C., uh, Salim Firth, who's a senior research fellow and the director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center here in town. And then Aaron Wren, an urban analyst and consultant, uh, well known to many of you who follow urban affairs and issues. So without further ado, I'd like to turn the stage over to Howard for his remarks, and then we'll, we'll welcome the panel up for um, a discussion. So please join me in welcoming Howard Hussock. Thanks so much, Ryan. Good afternoon, and thank you to AEI for hosting this event. My name is still Howard Husick. I'm a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, and the book is The Poor Side of Town and Why We Need It. I'd like to begin by talking about the Roman Empire. Now, that may not seem like the most obvious immediate leap, but I do think there's a connection between that and housing policy. The Romans, of course, were brilliant engineers uh, and city builders, and they invented many things for which the formulas have been lost. Among the most famous examples is that of Roman cement, which it turns out stands the test of time and water damage better than many later recipes. And it was lost in the Middle Ages completely. It's a slightly tortured comparison to the discussion of what is known today as affordable housing, filling the need for which perplexes many cities across the country. There was a time, just like the Roman formula for cement, when we had a formula for affordable housing, and it did not involve federal or state programs. It may sound cold to discuss the need for a poor side of town, but we once knew how to build these and in the process provide homes for millions of Americans at a cost they could afford. In Boston, in New England, 210,000 units in three-decker homes provided housing for 60,000 households. In Philadelphia, between 1870 and 1920, a staggering 299,000 row homes were built. Chicago had two flats. Oakland had bungalows. On and on and on, regional housing types that were poor sides of town and allowed people to move up from crowded tenement districts into their own home ownership. What was the secret formula? It's surprisingly simple and based on the following. Relatively small homes densely built on relatively small lots. This approach was not only the norm in cities, but in, even in affluent suburbs, so often characterized today by what we term exclusionary zoning. As Columbia University's Kenneth Jackson, the premier historian of American cities, has written, 
Unlike post-World War II suburbs, which are relatively homogenous socioeconomically, earlier suburbs were not restricted to a single economic class. There was diversity behind the posh mainline stereotypes, small dwellings in addition to the large mansions. Today, similar homes, those small dwellings, could be starter homes for our children, convenient homes for teachers, police, and firefighters, and protection against this insularity of the social classes that Charles Murray and Robert Putnam have written about so powerfully. But it's an approach that we've not only forgotten, we've effectively banned it. The ownership, agency, and wealth accumulation that comes with owning even a small home on a small lot was swept away, first by public housing, where private asset ownership was a contradiction in terms. It's government ownership. And indeed, since the late 19th century, and this is a core theme of the book, we've embarked on efforts to reform, regulate, and replace the private housing market. And in doing so, in the name of helping those of modest means, we've made obtaining affordable housing and building household wealth more and more difficult for them. The premise of my book, The Time is Right to Take Steps to Rectify the Situation, in part by rediscovering that lost poor side of town, small homes on small lots, that are still popular today in the places they exist. In the book, I use census data and a number of historic federal housing studies to support the argument. And I'll begin with a few of specific housing situations. I begin with a personal story of my service as perhaps the most minor elected public official in the United States, a member of the town meeting of a New England municipality, Brookline, Massachusetts. This is not the open town meeting that you remember from Norman Rockwell in the Saturday Evening Post, if you do remember that, but rather a municipal legislature representing a town of 60,000 people divided into 16 districts. One of its great advantages was that of socioeconomic diversity. It's a rich town, but not a uniformly rich town. Doctors and lawyers served alongside the custodians and public works laborers. I realized that this diversity which led to some political diversity, too, was a result of a diversity of housing type. There was a poor side of town whose two- and three-family homes contrasted with nearby mansions. There was literally, on top of the hill, Pill Hill, where the doctors lived, and at the bottom of the hill, I have to say, Whiskey Point, where immigrants from a certain ethnicity lived. I came to learn the poor side had once been much larger, before urban renewal took 200 of those homes along with small stores and businesses and replaced them with luxury high-rise housing and public housing. The area known as the farm had some cold water flats, but it was also characterized by a term which is key to my book's analysis and I think new to the literature, a high degree of owner presence. The 121 homes in the farm had 348 units. More than half were occupied either by an owner or a tenant whose owner lived in the same house. Not only were they owner-occupied, but they included rental units. Owners and tenants shared the same premises, and it was not an uncommon phenomenon across the country in the so-called slums of the city. These were a market-based provision of affordable housing, and in the process, these poor sides of town helped to forge a civic polity across social class lines and provided a means of asset building amongst the poor 
that helped assure them better public goods in their neighborhoods. If you have a vote in the town meeting and your street is unpaved, you have a good chance of getting it paved. And my experience sparked the driving question of the book. Why did the United States undertake widespread effort to demolish literally such buildings and to ensure that neighborhoods with similar sorts of housing diversity would not be built to replace them? I try to answer it through an intellectual history tied to a series of key figures. I'll start with Jacob Rees, a brilliant polemicist and especially photographer who became the first big housing muckraker. Well, before that, he was a police reporter, and that's important. He was trained as a sensationalist, and his approach to housing was aimed at finding situations and images that shocked. Well, there's no doubt that there were, there were apartments on the Lower East Side that didn't have their own bathrooms and showers. But there's good reason to believe that his take in this landmark book, How the Other Half Lived, exaggerated the plight of the late 19th century. And that's important for the precedent his accounts set for our later thinking. A new biography of Rees by contemporary Danish writer Tom Buxwienti, Rees was himself a Danish immigrant, he classed Rees among reporters and writers who wrote about the slums focused primarily on suffering and squalor. But then he adds, in fact, there was more to the slums than abject poverty. Hundreds of thousands of families lived relatively normal lives. They worked, sometimes under bad conditions. They paid rent. They fed their children. They had hopes and dreams for the future. And for a large number of poor immigrants, life in the tenements was an improvement on their old lives, offering a more dignified existence. This idea would remain elusive to subsequent generations of housing reformers. Poverty was not actually a life sentence, as Reese wanted people to believe. And it wasn't even as it was seemed at the time he wrote. In 1894, a report by the federal government on overcrowding and health problems found that it was relatively rare outside of New York. A slum district in Chicago had 73 owner-occupied two-family homes, 68 three-family homes. I can go on. Owner presence. In a great many on-site rental units, the owners were present. Chicago, like Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland, and other cities, had notably large African-American communities that developed during and after the, the Great Migration. Bronzeville in Chicago, known as the Black Metropolis, there was owner presence Black-owned businesses were common before they were cleared, demolished, to make way for what became infamous public housing projects, such as the Robert Taylor Homes. But Reese had set off a housing stampede, one whose effects we continue to live with today. First, it strongly reinforced the idea that housing should be built without the profit motive. That would be much better. The germ of public housing was planted there. From there, it was championed by Two women who should be much more well-known than they are, Edith Abbott Wood of Columbia University and Catherine Bauer, the author of an incredibly influential book called Modern Housing. Both believed the private housing market would, by its nature, fail the majority of the population. Both would join the Roosevelt administration, and Bauer herself would write the National Housing Act of 1937, which we continue to amend. It's the basic housing legislation of the federal government today. If you look at the book, Modern Housing, not in print anymore, but go to the Library of Congress. There are Rodegraviewer, those are glossy pictures, 
of early Soviet block housing. That was her ideal. It was that act, National Housing Act, which would become the vehicle not for upgrading slums, but for slum, and I put that in quote, clearance. Neighborhoods replete with small landlords taking in lodgers, single-room occupancy hotels, small shops, community institutions were swept away and replaced by public housing, where asset ownership was a contradiction in terms. My favorite example, and I have a long section in the book, is an iconic African-American neighborhood in Detroit known as Black Bottom. That was what the French called it for its black soil, home to more than 300 black-owned businesses, an active urban league to help new Southern transplants, prominent churches, including the new Bethel Zion Church, where the minister was C.L. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's father. Black Detroit residents that today continue to celebrate the neighborhood and mourn its loss, and the project was derided explicitly by Aretha Franklin herself in her song, Why I Sing the Blues, where she talked about, quote-unquote, Negro removal. If some clearance and public housing are one part of the Reese logic legacy, the other was so-called housing betterment, led by one Lawrence Veillet, a protege of Reese, who sought to give lasting form to his work through the Better Housing Association. He became what I call the Johnny Appleseed of housing codes and especially zoning. Now, by comparison with the strictures of land use today, Veillet had a relatively modest vision. Multifamily housing could be built, but only on main streets. Single family on the side streets separate commercial from residential. Over time, however, the combination of the public housing model and zoning became a formula deadly for the housing diversity which a population of varying household incomes need. I call it a housing ladder. Public housing proved in large part a dramatic and tragic failure. Systems in which no household can build assets and maintenance declined to a point where demolition became widespread. The famous implosion of the Pruitt-Igoe housing project in St. Louis, which replaced the DeSoto car, predominantly African-American neighborhood, it was demolished, imploded in 1971, only 17 years after it first opened and won architectural awards for Yamasaki, the architect who also designed the World Trade Towers. At the same time, this failure, these failures, have just not deterred the housing reformers. They've not only reinforced the view that there must be some public housing variation, some philosopher's stone that will ensure safe, sanitary, and affordable housing secured through public funding, rather than rediscovering the key attribute of natural affordability that the so-called slums of old offered, the reform march has ignored the possibility that small homes on small lots can do the job. And in my view, what's more, the long shadow of public housing and its failure has had ongoing deleterious effects, playing a role in convincing newer post-war suburbs that the best quality of life is attained only through restrictive zoning and larger and larger homes. The specter of high-rise apartment buildings with poor people just made it untenable in middle-class suburbs. Crucially, zoning, as has affected residential development, has come to be virtually synonymous with single-family zoning. And such zoning, by its nature, is a barrier to the development of lower-income sorts of town. As Robert Ellickson of the Yale Law School has noted, single-family zoning is not only set in place, it seems to be immutable. 
he notes how uncommon it is for it to be changed. It freezes in use, the zoning. And of course, that's true for public housing, too. When the government owns it, it can't be bought and sold. So it is that we face difficult current conditions as a result of this inheritance of housing reform. But we have to be careful to make change in the right way. We're hearing from the Trump administration that it wants to return to a program originated in the Obama era called affirmatively furthering fair housing. This idea is to influence local zoning through carrots and sticks of federal assistance such that a wider range of housing types will be built in the suburbs. The idea there is that nobody should live in a low opportunity zone. We'll move people from low opportunity inner cities to high opportunity suburbs. But the very name moving to opportunity says a great deal. One must move to have opportunity in America. The idea that low income neighborhoods could also be good neighborhoods where the streets are safe and the schools are effective is implicitly discounted. Instead, we, we're opting for some kind of social science experiment where we'll move poor people to wealthy areas where they'll enjoy the benevolence of those who have built and sustained the community. They've entered through a poor door and cannot help but understand their situation differently than those who have saved for a down payment, built a two-earner family, and enter not through the poor door, through the front door, even if it's to a small house. It's a different sense of achievement, and the whole process of moving up is important in itself. Moreover, in the Obama, now Biden proposal, there's deep reformers' assumption here that it's self-evident which neighborhoods are better. One student of the question, Ingrid Allen of New York University, notes that even when given a housing voucher to move to opportunity, a lot of people decide that, quote, social ties are likely to play a role in where they choose to live. They might rather live amongst family or friends, even if this is considered a concentration of power, even po poverty, even if it's denigrated as a concentration of power. Desirable communities are neither inevitable nor inherited. They must be built and maintained every day. In my view, and this is where the book moves, we must look to shared interest and persuasion of all the local planning boards in the country. We don't want to put them under the yoke of the federal government, not with subsidies or pressure. The idea that we face a missing middle in our housing markets, maybe it's a missing two-thirds, I don't know. We, begin, we need to begin to make local planning boards who set the zoning across the country aware of this, that relatively dense two to four unit housing can provide opportunity for millennials hoping to stay in their own hometowns, for teachers and firefighters who'd like to live where they work. It's worth noting that the quintessential post-World War II single-family suburb, Long Island's Levittown, featured homes of this grand magnitude of 750 square feet with no basement. They would be the poor side of town in many places today. We're beginning to see the dam break. Accessory dwelling units are increasingly permitted in Massachusetts and California, and California has recently legalized or taken the steps that may make possible conversion of single-family homes to two-family homes. I even see Airbnb as notable. It's a new way of talking about taking in lodgers to help uh, pay your rent. But just allowing a single-family home to be converted to a family home is not the same as a new development with 
70 small two and four family homes in which people can bond, have a feeling they're all in it together, can have stores that they can walk to, legitimate new poorer sides of town. And we must not forget the millions that continue to stagnate in public housing. As we've done with cash welfare, we need to change the culture of public housing. I think with the time limit so that as people move in, they have a sense, you're here for five years, save some money, but focus on moving up and out. So my view is let's convince the local zoning boards to re rediscover what pioneer sociologists of Boston, 1910 to 1915, Robert Woods and Albert Kennedy of something called the South End Settlement House. That's a whole other theme of mine, how important settlement houses were. They wrote a book about all these small houses they were seeing people buy, even before there were long-term mortgages, by the way. And they found that they wanted to call it the zone of emergence. That's upward mobility in America. They studied housing markets and found that nearly 50% of the small dwellings and three-family tenements are in the hands of one-time immigrant families in relatively humble circumstances. They were celebrating striving and saving. A century of housing reform has discouraged both. It's time for a change. Thank you very much. Howard, thank you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you for your remarks, and we'll look forward to the discussion we'll have now with our panelists. We're pleased to be joined today by uh, Vanessa Brown Calder, the staff director of the Joint Economic Committee in the U.S. Congress, just up the street from here. Um, Aaron Wren, uh, who's an independent urbanist and, and consultant, uh, formerly with the Manhattan Institute, uh, long author of Abrenophile, which I know a lot of you know, and before that, a partner at Accenture, um, brings a unique multi-pronged perspective. Um, and then Salim Firth, who's a senior fellow uh, at the Mercatus Center, where he also directs the Urbanity Project, uh, was previously uh, at Heritage Foundation before that. So we've got a great, great panel for you here, and I'm going to give each of them a chance to um, respond to Howard, um, to raise some questions perhaps that they would like him to address or that we can address as a group, and then we'll have a bit of a discussion here amongst ourselves. So I'll just go on down the line, if that's okay. Vanessa, if I can put you on the spot and just ask you uh, for your uh, opening remarks and your response to Howard. Sure. Um, I guess before I start, I am required to say these are my own personal views, not yes. the views of the Joint Economic Committee or any leadership there. Um, so with that out of the way, um, really appreciate the, this book that Howard has put together. Um, I think that there's a lot of important insights there, and the history contained in this book is really important in order for us to determine sort of how to move forward on housing policy. And so really appreciate all the work that he's done. One of the things that Howard mentions in this book, which um, I don't think he highlighted maybe as much in his comments today, but that I think is really important, are the various social impacts. And I think in the book there's even a line that calls them vast social consequences or vast social impacts of housing policy. Um, I think we talk a lot about sort of housing policy and housing affordability. That's certainly something that I've focused on as well and that I think is very important to highlight and that, you know, we have spent a lot of time as uh, folks that are urban analysts or urban economists talking about. But on top of housing affordability, there is this whole, these vast other consequences of housing policy in terms of our community life, our social life, and opportunity um, that we don't talk about maybe as much. Maybe we think that they're implied um, when we talk about housing affordability. 
But that is something that at JEC I've had um, the opportunity to actually look at a little bit more, and I couldn't help but think as I was reading through Howard's book how important those things are. Um, some of our research at JEC, of course, we, we are focused on the social capital project there, so we have a different focus than the traditional JEC has had. Um, and so we're really interested in those connections between policy, public policy, and our community and social life. And certainly in the area of housing policy, I, I think it's a gateway to all of these other things. Um, if you look at the intersection of housing and education, which if you talk to any parent, the, almost the moment that you bring up schools, they're going to start talking about housing. The moment that you talk about their search for housing, they're going to talk about schools. Um, that's certainly something where there is a real relationship there, a real connection between the housing that is accessible and available and um, the sort of school and community life associated with that school that people have the opportunity to experience and that their children have the opportunity to experience. Um, and if you look at sort of the, the data, if you look at various um, major metropolitan areas, that's something that I found to be most interesting is that it seems that housing policy, zoning policy in particular, really has an impact on the quality of schools that parents are able to send their children to and are able to access. Um, if you look at the Houston metropolitan area, which we talk about a lot as people that are interested in sort of urban issues, um, it doesn't have that traditional Euclidean zoning that many cities have where you separate uh, single-family homes from multifamily homes and um, you know, from commercial districts and that type of thing. As a result, you have a very organic land use pattern across the city of Houston. And what that translates into practically from a education and school standpoint is that at every school quality level, you have a lower average median home value associated with those high quality schools, yes. um, medium quality schools and so forth. Um, and and um, you have a lower median home value as compared to even national numbers, which is really incredible given that um, in Houston, Houston has had a huge amount of in-migration over the past uh, decade or so. And so they're really doing an impressive job with keeping up with housing demand and with keeping up with, um, you know, ultimately families' needs um, to be able to be closer to higher quality schools. So, you know, there's other aspects of housing policy, which I think also influence some of the, our ability to access various social communities, um, workplace, of course, the workplace and job opportunities. Um, and we've just recently put out some research on that topic as well. I'm sure that these guys would like to jump in, the, uh, in here with their own thoughts. So um, I guess I'll leave it there and we can return and maybe quibble about some of the policy recommendations later. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. And Howard, I should say, if you want to respond at all to anything that anyone says, you should always feel free to, to, to jump in. This can be should a have discussion. Should have had a chapter on Houston, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good point. We can come, come back to that um, as well. And we've, we do large national surveys here at AEI, and one thing that we've found um, pretty consistently, and it's, it features pretty prominently when we, when we survey people about their lives kind of at the community level, is that access 
to um, schools and other neighborhood institutions is you know, very closely correlated with people's estimation of the kind of community where they live. So um, affordable housing is always kind of the, the front of our discussions here uh, for a whole bunch of obvious reasons, but, but access to those sorts of things really matters to people. Um, yeah. It matters to parents, it matters to people in the community who associate those institutions with the identity uh, and fabric of, of the neighborhood too. So thinking about those things all together is important. How to do that is obviously challenging. Yeah. So we'll come back to that. Um, all right, um, Aaron, I'll turn it over to, to you for your remarks, thanks. Sure, thanks. Uh you know, Howard does a great job of highlighting all of these lower income, poor sides of town that served as platforms for upward mobility for people, like a first rung on the ladder that really led somewhere in America. Uh, I look around today and I see a lot of poor neighborhoods that are not that. Uh, you know, in Indianapolis, we have a lot of very affordable housing, uh, but you know, according to the Economic Innovation Group, you know, we've seen increasing numbers of poor census tracts, et cetera. So there seem to be poor neighborhoods that serve as platforms for upward mobility and others that don't maybe even serve as downward mobility. One of the things that I liked about the book, although I don't think this was the main purpose of the book, is that Howard really illustrates many of the characteristics that make for a neighborhood that's not only affordable, but actually will serve as a platform for upward mobility. And he mentioned one in his presentation, which is, owner presence, so the fact that people own the houses and are physically present in the neighborhood makes a big difference. And so there were a few characteristics that I just wanted to highlight that I took out of the book uh, because I think we like to focus a lot on zoning. It's a huge topic of debate in urbanist circles. And there are a lot of other characteristics that have declined and degraded as well that I think we should take stock of and look for ways to improve if we really want to do it. It's not just enough to, to zone the thing, right, I would say. So I would say this gets into, again, the physical viability, social capital, uh, and financial viability, and then the economic ladder. So on the physical, again, we have to have the zoning that allows these small lots, et cetera. I think there's also an element of what you might call building codes in that uh, I think one thing Howard really nails is that standards for housing are set by the preferences and risk profile of the professional managerial class, not the preferences of lower income people themselves. And so we have to, you know, we can't mandate all these amenities, et cetera, in sizes and occupancies uh, if we're going to have affordability. Uh, so I, I, I will talk less about that because I think that's gonna be amply covered. I see a few challenges in other places. One is in social capital. These were high social capital neighborhoods where we know we've had declining social capital in the United States. Now, obviously, owner occupancy itself would be a form of social capital, but that's one I would look at. Uh, another one is, you know, can these homes be maintained over time? And I think we, we have seen, uh, I think maybe in some of these historic examples, we had people who were much more oriented on doing things like fixing stuff in the house where it goes wrong, or there was low cost labor in that community that you could hire. Today, it's very expensive to maintain a home, particularly a lot of the existing poor side of town neighborhoods or older homes that need to be maintained. You know, my dad could build an entire house himself. He knows how to do every single task it takes to build a house. You know, I can change light bulbs and things like that. <laughs> and so I think there's, there's, there's fewer skills in maintaining houses today than I think it was much more pervasive in the population. And many of these, um, Many of these uh, immigrant communities uh, that came from maybe more kind of call it peasant backgrounds, like some of my Sicilian ancestors, 
coming from that kind of rural peasant environment, they came with an orientation towards physical skills. And so I do think we still see that. We still see in immigrant neighborhoods today higher levels of social capital and maybe somewhat, you know, depending if it's a developing world country, people come in with more of a physical orientation towards some of that stuff, which is why I think if you look at like who's running, the, who's doing the construction in these cities, who's running the car repair shop, it's often immigrants who are doing that, that they, they have a physical orientation towards that uh, from where they came from. So I think maintenance is big. And then the other one is the, the fact that it, historically there was much more intact families, you know, husband, wife, children. Today, in these lower income neighborhoods, tremendous prevalency of single parent families among the lower income. And so uh, predominantly single mothers. And this makes it just much more difficult, even if you have the skills, do you have the time, et cetera. So I think thinking about how that has changed so that these homes can actually be maintained and sort of operated uh, once they're acquired is, is something we need to think about how we do that. And then lastly is the financing. You know, we, how do we buy them? And, and I'd be interested in thinking about, you know, again, historically it happened prior to mortgages. We tried extending home ownership down the income ladder through a lot of these subprime mortgages and that. It sort of blew up. Um, I think we need to think about how we enable people to make wise financial choices to be able to get ownership or, for example, to be able to invest uh, you know, in upgrading one of these older homes that already exists. Right now it's hard to get a loan. In a city, it's like if you're coming in, if you're rich, yuppie, and you want to do a gut rehab, you can get a you know big loan to do that. But if you just want to incrementally upgrade your your place over time, how do you get the access to capital to do that? I think is something to look at uh, as well. So that's the financial side. And then lastly, I'll just say I think we have to think about the economic ladder as well. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in the book was about some of the, the favelas in the third world, and the economists love slums for some reason. And they said, well, the slums are better than you know, the rural poverty that they came from. That may be true, but how do you get out of the slum? I think thinking about the ladder of what's the next step up and making sure we, have, we actually have a ladder that, you know, gives people a way to build, you know, out of these neighborhoods, I think would, would be uh, important as well. But, you know, again, I think one of the keys of this book is I think that it does go into a lot of you, when you read these neighborhood profiles, all the different characteristics beyond the housing uh, that really led to, these being high-functioning, poorer neighborhoods. They weren't just, they, and so not all neighborhoods are this way. And I think the owner presence thing is really just a key one we need, to, we need to think about. It's not just the housing. It's like the fact that the owners are there and the social capital that generates, et cetera. Just real quick, Ryan, uh, I really appreciate those remarks. And it, it's the poor side of town. It's not affordable housing. Right. It's about a neighborhood, community mm -hmm. orientation. And on, on you know, the, the fear the problems of uh, single-parent families, obviously so endemic and so crucial and so explains so many of our, our problems. But keep this in mind. In public housing, the more money you earn, the more rent you pay. That's our state of public policy. So, you know, we're here at AEI where Charles Murray uh, published Losing Ground, which was about disincentives that are embedded in federal policy we can at least try to reflect on what disincentives we have to family formation in our current uh, housing policies, and we have a lot of them. Hmm. That's, um, yeah, it's a good point. And I, want, I do want to come back to, we've raised some interesting questions just about social fabric, social capital, families, um, but also this topic of ownership and the, the sense of this community, this house is mine and this community is mine, is, uh, is 
one of the things I hear you saying, Aaron, is kind of a yeah. distinctiveness between the poor side of town where upward mobility happens and these other stagnating places, maybe where it's less common. And talking a little bit more about that, yeah. the ownership, you know, because we have we've had multiple experiences with attempts to boost home ownership, and some of them have been um, unsuccessful. And reflecting on that is is useful. Um, I also can change light bulbs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> light bulbs have changed too. Light bulbs have changed too. They're more complicated. I can't read the packages anymore. <laughs> I, I, I understand the old wattage system much better. I've owned a 80-year-old home, a 25-year-old home, a brand new home, and a 10-year-old home. I've owned four homes, and I'm back to being a renter again <laughs> because it's actually easier. But um, what I learned is that I can tinker around with the 80-year-old home and fix things. But the 10-year-old home, I learned that's when warranties break on everything. It's 10 years. Mm -hmm. So yeah, don't buy a 10-year-old home. <laughs> that's like Because yeah. I can't replace freezers and, and hot water heaters and all those things. You have to hire someone to do that, which mm -hmm. I did them all. Think of every appliance you have in a home, and they all broke. All right, um, Salim, we'll let you bring up the, the, the back end of our first responses to Howard. Thank you. Um, thank you, Howard. This was a, this was a great book. Um, what, really, what really struck me when I, when I got this book in the mail was the cover. Um, so I, I grew up in Boston, uh, specifically the Dorchester area and, and suburbs around there, in the 80s and 90s. And this is just like, this is a blast from the past, like the yellowing vinyl. I don't know if the cameras can, can get close enough to make this useful for our remote audience, but the yellowing vinyl, uh, you'll see like the Ford Bronco there if you look closely, which helps really date the photo. And so I just spent a long time just like looking at this cover and then trying to figure out where exactly it was. I couldn't guarantee it was Boston, but I was pretty sure. And it, it, the reason it looked so familiar is I had walked down that street a few times in the last year. My brother lived about a block, so if you like turn left there, um, my brother and his wife lived half a block down the street. They just moved. And my parents, uh, before I was born, uh, lived maybe four blocks from there um, on, a, on a bigger road in an apartment. And so this is, you know, okay, great personal story. I like the cover of the book. Great cover, Howard. And I emailed the photographer after failing on like Google Maps to just like identify the location. Uh, I emailed the photographer. You don't all have to bother him. It's Crescent Avenue in Boston. Um, he was he was very nice. He took the photo sometime probably late '80s, and uh, in a collection for a magazine story he did at the time on triple decas. Um, but the reason I bring up my family aside from personal interest is that uh, you know. My, my dad is a, a college professor. Um, my brother and his wife are kind of um, young professionals working in jobs that are hard to describe. And they both use this, the same neighborhood um, as, a, as a kind of an in-between place, a, a way station for a few years. In both cases, literally uh, leaving when expecting their first child and moving to still within the city of Boston, but a neighborhood with uh, fewer stairs in the building. So you can bring the stroller up. You don't have to bring the stroller up and down and you know, a little more space and more playgrounds. Um, and in both cases, the, the house they're moving to uh, or moved to is a duplex or triplex. And this is like, most families don't have this kind of one generation later echo. Um, but I, there's a couple lessons I draw from. So one is people move more than we act like they move. So when we talk about neighborhoods, very frequently read news stories, and they manage to find the one lady who's lived in the neighborhood for 60 years, and they interview her about how things are changing, and it's terrible. Um, and it's got to be the same lady every time because not that many people stay in one place <laughs> right, for, for very long. Um, and the other thing is talking about gentrification. So my parents and my brother in this neighborhood both probably would be characterized as gentrifiers. But the, the gentrification presence has basically been constant for what, 35 or 40 years. So it's not that it's gentrifying. It's that it is a neighborhood where 
a bunch of different people live. So there's a big Vietnamese immigrant population. Um, there's kind of the, the Irish population that was, that was an immigrant population before, but some have stuck around. Um, there's a smattering of African Americans. And then there's some young professionals of, of various races who choose it because it's close to the red line. Um, it's not very far from, from a bunch of the colleges. And you know, it's kind of convenient if the main thing you're doing is you know, your life is out and your home is a place that you, you come back to after your interesting um, young professional day. Then once you have kids, you want a space that's better for the more amount of time that you spend on your own lot when you have small children, as I do now. Um, so neighborhoods are characterized by change and by diverse populations that don't, so people don't like sort of choose a neighborhood and stay there forever. So this is not a point in Howard's book. I totally hijacked the cover of your book to make a totally unrelated point. <laughs> um, but I think it's got to inform and connect to when we talk about moving to opportunity and the sort of that reformer's gaze, which is the environmental determinism, environmental not being like, you know, birdies and insects, but like the human environment. Reformers love environmental determinism. Uh, right, and Catherine Page Harden has this, this important book out now, trying to like help progressives admit that genetics is a thing, um, and that like people are different. There's things that we can't control from the outside. You can't sort of fix someone's environment and make them the person that you would like them to be. The reformer's gaze, and there's all kinds of like social and ethical issues. I'm not going to get into those. The reformer's gaze, right? It says, "Oh my gosh, your situation is bad. We're going to fix your situation right. externally." Um, and so, you know, that, that disregards the amount that people move around and make their own choices for what's right for them at that moment, and that's not going to stay right for them. It disregards um, all the, the sort of intrinsic, as opposed to extrinsic, motivations and things that make people tick. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead us, like, I don't know, moving to opportunity to me, is, it's not a big boy policy. You can't move everybody, even if, even if it was a total success, which it's not. Chetty's paper rate gets quoted all the time. It's like, oh, the people under 13 did better. You were too nice. The people over 13 didn't just merely not have as much gains. They did actively worse, right? But we never cite negative results. So we don't cite this paper that said, well, for half of the people in the study, it was, it was positive, and half of the people, it was actively harming them, maybe one-third, actively harming them. But we don't cite that. We say, oh, it's a success. Moving to opportunity is a success. Uh, but it's not even a big boy policy. You can't move that many people. If you were to go into Chicago and take everyone living on a low-income census tract, and try to move them all out to the suburbs, the suburbs would no longer be the same as they were. Maybe, that's, maybe they'd be better, but they would not be the same place. You wouldn't be giving them the same treatment effect. Um, and it's just fundamentally immature that we're thinking that, that we can like, play with these toy, essentially experimental lab scale models, um, as opposed to thinking about, oh, every town can have a poor side, and how do we, to Aaron's point, uh, how do we support and think about the ways that make that a successful poor side? I've probably gone on way too long. Thank you. No, it's, it's great. And, and I love what you're saying about uh, these incremental moves, you know, because one of the reasons I think that the, the efforts to goose home ownership uh, blew up was we were trying to get people to go from zero to 60. So you're in public housing and we're going to move to a single family house. Well, what if you were first a renter somewhere? And you observed how Ryan changed the light bulb. Say, so, oh, maybe I can change a light bulb. Maybe I'll become a small owner too, and I can use rental income. You know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac—they don't even like to count rental income as part of their way to determine whether a mortgage is conforming and can be resold in the secondary market or not. We've just wiped that off the map, and that's—we—it blew up for a lot of well-known reasons, but it blew up for what was not in it too.
Yeah, um, those are those are good points, and I do want to come back to that um, a little bit more because I think each of you probably has something to, to say on the, the ownership question. So let's come come back to that in a minute. One thing that I, I wanted to just kind of um, have you talk about explicitly, Howard, I'll ask you first and then ask the, the others to weigh in. Um, since uh, I think it's in the book, we've kind of talked uh, about pieces of it here. But when it comes to essentially the kind of fundamental agreements, uh, sorry, the fundamental ingredients um, in a community that are conducive to upward mobility from the bottom. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about this practically in terms of, say, actually designing um, a neighborhood or a community, what, what are those fundamental agreements? What's, what's sort of um, implicit in your argument that maybe hasn't been explicit so far? Yeah, I, I think they're extremely straightforward. I think they're um, safe streets, good schools, good parks, Clean streets. They're so basic. Maybe there's a fifth, but I'm not sure what it would be. But public goods are really important. And there's a reason we call them public goods is because the whole public needs them. And we focus so much on changing the environment of people and all these other very hard-to-control things. Government has a role, and it can do those things. It can make streets safe. We know that it even happened in dangerous places that got safer. It can provide for great parks. Civil society can complement government with park conservancies. We've seen a huge upsurge in those. Streets can be cleaned. The garbage can be picked up. Broken windows, policing, some people think it's controversial today, but it goes beyond just safe streets. It means not seeing garbage on your street. the idea that your street, your neighborhood, you know, in the Lower East Side, what did they do when they had a, a problem with sanitation? They built public baths. Those were public goods. That was a very practical response to a need, rather than saying everybody has to have their own apartment with, with uh, an indoor bath. That was not practical, right? It was not a big boy policy. I like that. I'm going to steal that, right? So those really basic city services, I think, uh, public goods are really the crucial thing. Hmm. So Vanessa and Aaron, you both talked a little bit about the social infrastructure. Is that mm-hmm. is what Howard said? Is that enough? Yeah. As far I as think- ingredients for upward mobility, safe streets, good schools, clean streets, jobs, of course, places of work. I think as I've um, continued to commute into D.C. over the past year and a half or two now, um, year and a half or so, I've seen a dramatic difference before. COVID, right, and after COVID, and I attribute a lot of that to the removal of some of these, some of this social infrastructure. People are not going into work anymore, right, so it leaves the streets vacant. The urban planner in me, I graduated in urban planning during undergrad, and um, probably most urban planners wouldn't like my sort of laissez-faire approach to um, city growth and development at this point, but... um, but you sort of do need and you feel the presence of other people on the street. That makes them, that makes them safer, actually having more bodies out there, more eyes on the street, as Jane Jacobs would say. So um, I, think, I think you do need that, and I think some of that um, happens naturally when you have functional schools, when you have functional um, places of work, and you have upward opportunity. So um, yeah, so I think those are some of the things I agree. Jobs are important, but they don't have to be in that neighborhood. The idea that we're going to have uh, economic development means you have to live in the same neighborhood. Most people don't. 
I don't think that they need to necessarily be in that neighborhood in order to have a um, positive influence in the individual workers' lives. Um, but I do think that there's something nice and complementary from a safety point of view as well to having commercial and retail and some of these businesses that are open at night, right, as well as during the day, and to have that continual flow of people on the street, um, people walking around, and eyes on the street. As opposed to single-use zoning. Its, yep, it all kind of all supports Great. each other. Yeah, very good. Aaron, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I do think... Uh, that there are some things we know how to do and we can do very well. There are some things that, well, we kind of know they're, they're a little harder problems, and there are some that we really haven't totally cracked the code on. So definitely, in terms of public goods, parks, clean streets, you know, say, you know, safe streets in terms of the design that they have, those are things that are eminently doable. They don't require any great, it doesn't require any great policy insight to be able to, you know, maintain a high-quality park. We kind of know how to build parks. You know, I think, you know, and then I think we get into, um, you know, we get into the policing. It's definitely one that, you know, we've, we've had a lot of success with that. Um, it's not as straightforward as, you know, physical infrastructure. It's just a simple matter of spending some money. Policing gets uh, a little more uh, more challenging but still doable. And then we get into education. It's, it's definitely been one that's been this huge focus area for a long time that I would say I don't think we've really cracked the code on education in the way that we did in some of these other areas. But I think because social capital kind of, there has been this decline, you know, the, the Catholic parish that might have anchored one of these neighborhoods in Boston is just not what it used to be. Um, you know, the public goods and services, to the extent that they, uh, you know, they, they are generally publicly goods and services and not social engineering, I think, can play a role in helping to, to underpin mm-hmm. underpin some of that um, uh, as well. Mm. You know, when the, you know, just when the you know, if you want people to maintain their house, then the government needs to maintain the assets that it owns. Yeah. For example, yeah, I remember um, doing an evaluation um, years ago after Steve Goldsmith was mayor in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and they had the Front Porch Alliance. It was aptly named, mm-hmm. you know, a, a way to to essentially take a neighborhood-based approach to redevelopment, the, the front porch being a great symbol, you know, where people uh, at least used to gather before they had back decks. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and a lot of those homes actually have front porches. Um, but targeted eight neighborhoods and used a combination of sort of HUD CDBG funding and other local funds to provide resources to um, community improvement plans. And one thing that we found in those eight neighborhoods, the ones that um, by any metric you wanted to look at had improved over the course of eight, eight years, and sometimes improved in ways you wouldn't have expected, declining infant mortality rates, um, better public health outcomes uh, initially just from uh, more engagement in the community, was um, often because the, the people at the neighborhood association who were on the, board, on the board of the neighborhood association in those neighborhoods were also elders in the church down the street, mm-hmm. for instance, you know. Mm-hmm. And in some of the, the lower income white neighborhoods, say on the south side, which is really an Appalachian migration mm-hmm. population where you don't have a lot of community kind of, um, they don't get out, they're not joiners, really. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't see those same outcomes. Yeah. So there, there was this kind of um, organizing around very specific public goods, parks that had flowers growing in them instead of, of um, needles and broken glass yeah, and that sort right. of thing, which, you know, they were physical projects, but they created a kind of social interaction. And this is one that I was involved in. You can go to a number of different places and see, see the same, same kind, of a, kind of a thing. When option, options were given to neighborhoods 
lead, to neighborhood leaders to do things like actually take over some of the, the things the city was supposed to do. Mm. Um, would you like to contract out to have your trash picked up, for instance? Neighborhood leaders are like, we don't want to do, <laughs> we don't want to do trash pickup. That's your job. Like, we, we pay taxes for that. We're happy to have the city do that. But when it came to some of these other community amenities, making sure the library, you know, the, the, the city was investing in the library, helping out, putting volunteers together to help make the library a better place and more welcoming for kids, um, the parks across the street, those, th those sorts of community engagements, you know, in this particular project had, you know, um, what I think were pretty evident social capital outcomes. And we've, we found in our own work here at AEI and the surveys that we do that when people live uh, within a decent proximity to these things. Um, their library, people love libraries. To, you know, they mm -hmm. still love their libraries. In this digital age, they love, they love their libraries. When, when you survey people and ask them what's the most important thing in your neighborhood or what makes a neighborhood successful, libraries are always up at the, the top of the, the list. And they're evolving yeah. in new ways, too. Right, and some of them are fantastic now. These incredibly um, great. They're, they're essentially kind of a next iteration of a community center, really, That's in, right. in many ways. And they provide community programming. They're very valuable to people that live near them. But when you, when you live within proximity to uh, a number of these things, to your kid's school, to, um, to the parks, to the libraries, to a house of worship, if you are someone who goes to a house of worship, um, you're, you're more willing to say yes when asked if you'd be willing to show up to help out in the community in some way. Um, you're more likely to rate your community as an excellent place to live, regardless of income, ethnicity, uh, levels of, of, of wealth and the like. So I think, I think there's something to, to, that, to that thesis for, for sure when we're thinking about what it means to actually um, create a neighborhood that's not just affordable, but one that actually is successful, that kind of has at least some of those ingredients for kind of weaving um, the social safety net through social capital together. Um, I, I want to... Uh, just one yeah. thing, right, on that. In many ways, urban populations are disadvantaged in that regard compared to suburban populations. One of the reasons I think people move to the suburbs is... It's a smaller place. Mm -hmm. Their voice can be heard. Their vote actually counts more as a numerator versus the denominator of all the other votes. And it's much more typical for reliance on volunteers in local government in suburban jurisdictions. So I am actually a fan of breaking up city governments, but that's an entirely different book and a discussion. <laughs> well, we can certainly talk about that. Let's. Um, uh, Let's talk a little bit about the zoning issue, since you mentioned it. It's obviously a big issue. Um, Salim and I were talking about this beforehand, that that has become an issue now that it wasn't 20 years ago when we were talking mostly about subsidies when we talk about affordable housing. Now, now everyone's talking about, about zoning. Um, I'd be interested to know kind of what all of you think just about we're sitting here in Washington, D.C., uh, we're sitting, you know, a number of us are with organizations that are part of or advise policymakers here in Washington, D.C., um, are there appropriate federal carrots and sticks when it comes to responsible zoning, the decisions of which are typically made at the municipal, maybe the state level? Vanessa did great work on zoning at Cato. I want to hear from her first. <laughs> I can jump in here. Um, so I think that the case that I made at Cato, one of the things that I found is that federal subsidies are concentrated in states that have um, that have more zoning, more restrictive zoning regulation, which is sort of an interesting finding. Um, and, you know, it may be that those states also have less affordable housing, which one would expect when you have more restrictive zoning regulations in those places. Um, but that's sort of a bad thing because that means that these states are really being rewarded for 
sort of dysfunctional housing policy. Um, they're not actually addressing the underlying concerns. If you talk to local officials, a lot of times they'll say, well, we have such bad housing affordability issues here. If only we had more federal subsidies for right. housing, then we could address our um, housing affordability issues. So. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's a little bit of a problem because it hasn't dawned on them that some of these things are within their control completely. Um, and so, you know, Howard mentioned AFFH. The Trump administration looked at AFFH. Honestly, it's been a while since I looked at AFFH. <laughs> um, but at the time um, that they were looking at it a couple of years ago, and they were trying to actually revise the rule so that you could attach some type of zoning liberalization requirements to that federal grant money. Um, you know, people, uh, especially on the right side of the aisle, more libertarian maybe, don't really like the idea of the federal government attaching some types of requirements to these um, to this housing grant money or to any type of grant money because, of course, they don't want federal government meddling. I am totally sympathetic to that. Um, I just think as long as there are housing subsidies, enormous housing subsidies that we're providing to state and local government, we, we should, um, you know, if there's something within their power that they can do so that they're not being subsidized by the rest of the country for their housing policies, if there's some type of signal or way that we can highlight to them that this is really within their control, then I think that's something that we should at least seriously consider, which has sort of been my position on that particular topic in the past. Yeah, very good, thanks. Yeah, and that was an interesting experiment so as, as long as that, that proposal existed uh, before <laughs> it existed and then it was taken away. Um, that is, the to, president said, there's no way this could work. He was the libertarian on the block and, and just shut it down completely. Trump. Yeah, he said there's no way that, sorry, AF Well, the AF, they, yeah. they, uh, a pretty elaborate and, and sophisticated version of affirmatively further fair housing was developed by HUD under the Trump yeah. administration. Yeah. Right. And then the president found out about it and said, why are we doing anything with that? Get rid of it. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I'm saving your suburbs. He started making a yeah. campaign slogan. Yeah. So that might have been something like the in-between way that you're talking about, but it, 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 it didn't happen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. His own administration was doing some pretty interesting thinking around that and soliciting you know, what I think interesting comments, including from some of my colleagues here at AEI on this. Before, I think there were certain political considerations about suburbs and uh, all of that that sort of factored, factored into that. Could be. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, yeah I don't think that's the sm smartest conversation. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, that we've had on AFFH. Um, just simply thinking about it as destroying the suburbs or not destroying the suburbs, I don't think is quite the level of nuance that I would like on the topic. But... Um, yeah. But anyways, yeah, yeah that was that was expecting a little bit more nuance. It yeah. seemed to be possible at that mo moment in time for sure. Well, I, I love Vanessa's nuance, and, and I try to be a practical person. My fear is, for instance, during the Obama years, when there was a contingency in, in, insinuated into community development block grants, like the one that you talked about, such that there might be some zoning changes needed in order to qualify. HUD asked. For for what amounted to be some 60 different questions about whether you were meeting their test. Is the new housing close enough to a high quality school? Is it, new, is it in a food desert or not in a food desert? And so it's, the, the fear is that once you open the door to this, you truly will have meddling. And uh, remember most 
communities in the United States don't receive federal subsidies. So there would be, they'd be singled out in a certain way. I, I guess my position would be um, just that, you know, locations that have super restrictive zoning that is harming their uh, ability to build, whether it's CDBG buildings or infrastructure or whether it's something else, um, you know, maybe they should be, maybe that should be highlighted for them. And so I think that the revised version, version of AFFH, I absolutely will not go to bat for the Obama administration's version of AFFH, which did have a lot of questions, not clear what exactly the questions had to do with, um, you know, having a more integrated community life or whatever it is that they were trying to get at. Um, but I think that the updated version of AFFH was at least an attempt to do that. Very good. Do, do either of the rest of you have any idea, any thoughts just on federal yeah, so involvement I, on this issue? I think the most constructive of, of a variety of sort of federal proposals that have come out um, is the, the Build More Housing Near Transit Act, which is, I think, actually misnamed. It's Build Transit Closer to Housing is really what it does, essentially. It instructs the Department of Transportation to take more seriously what is the actual density or the zoned possible density before handing out money for transit projects. So it's when you know, we, we have the federal government involved in a variety of you know, things that have to do with urban form. And it's not that the federal government should be you know, necessarily requiring some level of zoning to get any funding whatsoever. But when they're doing kind of competitive grants, they should certainly be taking into account, are you going to allow people to build homes near this transit station that the federal taxpayer is paying for? Um, or is it essentially just going to be captured by local incumbents the way that say like the East Bay, California uh, BART was, where the municipality said, oh yeah, yeah, give us, give us the, the rapid transit, we'll totally upzone, and then they were like, ah, just kidding. Yeah. Um, and to this day, you've got this incredibly expensive neighborhood, where, or neighborhoods, cities, where um, you know, single family zoning is, is the only thing going, um, apart from large shopping malls with, with big parking lots yeah. by these East Bay transit centers. Right, very good. Now there's, there's a lot to continue discussing there, I mean we do, attach conditions to federal funding all the time with expected outcomes. We could, we could argue whether or not we should do that. In certain cases, we, we, we allow states to, to rate the quality of childcare centers as a condition upon the amount of money they get for, for um, uh, childcare funding. Um, we do this with certain drug treatment centers. It's, a, it's an interesting question as to when people get housing or development related funding, whether or not th there should be a, sort of a, a scale, you know, with respect to the kind of freedom or lack thereof that they have. And I think that's, that's, that's probably an area that, that's ripe for continued exploration, probably goes beyond our time to, to keep discussing it today, but I'm happy to come back to it. I did want to um, raise this question of, of home ownership too. We've, we've all, because of, of some of our efforts to boost home ownership in lower income and minority communities around the country over the last 25 years or so, and some of them not going so well, and especially in the wake of 2008 and 9, um, we've gotten sort of shy about that. But to the, 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 some of the points made earlier, there is something about ownership within particular com communities that seems to matter to create the kind of environment for upward mobility that we, we hope to have. And the question I have for all of you, and Howard, you can weigh in first here if you'd like, is how important is home ownership to, to this project? Like, should, should we make home ownership a bigger priority now, again, than it has been? Or does ownership of a community, the kind of, the kind of community that you're talking about, um, is it possible through other things besides actually owning your home? Well, home ownership has been the ticket to wealth accumulation for middle class and lower middle class Americans. And, that, and it, 
remains that. Uh, I, I don't think that we should have interventions in the housing market that risk having people who are underqualified become homeowners because I think that actually puts most at risk working-class homeowners, working-class minority homeowners particularly, if the house down the block from you goes into foreclosure and they're not maintaining it, your hard-earned wealth accumulation is put at risk. So I think sound underwriting should not go out the window uh, with, with continuing to believe in homeownership. And by the way, we've de-emphasized homeownership through the tax code because 90% of Americans don't itemize their taxes anymore. So the, the vaunted mortgage uh, interest deduction, which people who talked about unfairness in the tax code and middle class is subsidized and poor people aren't, well, that's basically gone. You know? So we're not pushing uh, homeownership as much as we used to. But too often, I do feel, affordable housing is framed as rental housing. And that was the big error of public housing. You know, I, I certainly agree that the, the gap in accumulated wealth between uh, white and black Americans is something that deserves our attention. But I don't think we realize how much that is a residue, a legacy of destroying black neighborhoods and, and giving people this gift of public housing. Because not only were they minimally compensated because their homes weren't that valuable at the time, but they lost out on all the appreciation that that property might have gotten. So Black Bottom in Detroit, my signature uh, case study in the book, uh, when that was torn down in between 1948 and 1952, uh, Detroit was about to become one of the richest cities in the world. It's hard to believe now, but it was. So that land, those homes that they owned, they could have cashed in. Instead, they got transplanted into the Frederick Douglass Towers. You know, it just pains me to think that those public housing projects were even named for Frederick Douglass. Uh, so I do think home ownership remains important. I think we have to be careful about how we do it, and I think we need the spectrum of housing types to encourage people to get in in affordable ways, yeah. sustainable ways, to mm -hmm. use that word. I think you also yeah. mentioned business ownership, and yes. that might be one that's even a little easier to pull off. Um, yeah, there, there is something nobody isn't, you know, when you've, you've invested your whole livelihood in a space, it's similar to investing your home True. Uh, in a space. So I think you know maybe maybe business ownership is uh, a route towards more ownership in a community. Uh, you know maybe than home ownership would be uh, at, at some level. But that's that's another form of it. But again, we've sort of changed a little bit. Things have changed since the mid-century era. If we think about uh, Jane Jacobs talking about. Neighborhood. She talked about shopkeepers' eye on the streets and sort of the the shopkeeper as the natural proprietor of the street. Well, today, essentially, the homeless are the natural proprietors of the street. <laughs> they can hang out right outside your business. You can't tell them to move along or some of these ways that there were sort of informal social controls that have sort of been you know delegitimized. But nevertheless, I still think this idea that like you know business owner or someone is is very invested you know in that neighborhood, and that's another way, uh, besides just home ownership, uh, that you know, we can get more ownership in an area. Yeah, and that got back to, uh, I think Vanessa made this point earlier, that you need to have mixed-use zoning in the first place. Right. You know? So you've got vast tracts of post-war suburbs where people can't walk to anything. Right. And we're seeing a premium paid, and we have new indices of walkability. Right? So we went through a whole 50 years of building areas where you can't walk, and now saying, 
gee, we really value walking. But yep. we, we can't do it because of zoning. Uh, so I, I think, and maybe this is a caution, ownership is probably mostly an outcome, right? So if you're talking about people who are unslumming themselves and That's rising, right. right? If you're going to look at successful zones of emergence, it's absolutely going to be ownership, business, and, hmm. and residential there. But I don't think I should, we should think of that as a precondition. Absolutely and if there's, right. If there's a, and I don't think you're doing this, Howard, but if there's a risk of people taking your book the wrong way, it's be like, oh, this is the philosopher's stone, mm -hmm. you know, and, and replacing the, you know, the older reformers, which, as you mentioned, in a lot of contexts, the newer generation is, is more, you know, Jacob's influenced and, and less uh, towers in a park um, influenced. And, and so, yeah, people are moving in this direction, but we don't want to say, oh, there's another philosopher's stone, which is, let's try to recreate uh, immigrant neighborhood conditions circa 1910, right? And I think that just goes to generally a, a skepticism of environmentalism or belief that Americans are too prone to this kind of behavioral environmentalism and say like, yeah, ownership is great. And if I look at a, a neighborhood with lots of ownership, probably there's been lots of emergence there. Um, but I don't, you can't, you, you can't play that record in reverse. Yeah, I, I just love that point, Celine, because the process of doing the, the right things that prepare you to be the person who buys a home right. are as important as ultimately owning the right. home. And, and if we say, you get the outcome without having done the work, we're not doing anybody a favor. Then to the, to the point about um, you know, making, it, making it affordable, um, I think so, so duplexes and triplexes were this huge trend in, in state zoning proposals last year. So I think 10 states uh, introduced proposals that would have turned all, not all, but a lot of their single family zoned land uh, to duplexes and triplexes. To my mind, I love those. Like, if you could pass that easily, great, pass it. But that's a big political lift because you're, you're um, changing a large number of homeowners zoning for what I think is going to be a fairly small impact because mostly, especially in a neighborhood where, with established homes, you're not going to knock down a house to replace it. Right? You're, that's a big waste of existing physical capital. I think there's a lot more uh, potential action in really small lot sizes, which Houston uh, has very successfully done. And especially if you're doing greenfield development, allowing really, really small lot sizes uh, and, and small homes on them, I think is a much more likely avenue. The other thing we have nobody said yet is manufactured housing, right? right. Which is um, in more rural areas where land isn't at quite the premium uh, in the US, that's going to be the primary kind of zone of emergence. Somebody can start to own something that's a lot cheaper and smaller. Um, but sadly, uh, manufactured housing on owned land is declining. So manufactured housing is moving to sort of more of a park-only model in most states where the, the, the manufactured home park owns the land. You only own this sort of depreciating physical asset. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. I would like to see a lot more jurisdictions, especially rural ones, zoned to allow and encourage you know, the really small subdivision, small, small parcel of land, maybe in the corner of your grandfather's field, where you're able to own the land, own the uh, manufactured home you put there, and use that as a wealth, wealth building strategy. Yeah, it's so interesting. Modest changes in law can matter a lot. Like inventing IRAs. Who thought that was going to be a revolution? But it was, you know? Nobody thought when that law was passed. I don't believe that it was going to revolution. Yeah, I do think, you know, you mentioned the point. I mean, a lot of the discussion now is, you know, let's abolish single-family zoning statewide or these large-scale things. It's just not necessary to do that. I mean, I think we should treat zoning liberalization as a tool, not as an ideology. And I think there's, there's a lot of people who just think single-family homes bad, 
And that creates a, that creates a lot of political opposition. And I think it does raise question about the motive. Why do you have to have the whole state have no single family zoning instead of having more targeted approaches, I think. Well, in Greenfield development, as Salim yeah. mentioned, uh, you know, for instance, San Jose, California, which is the, the heartland of post-war single family zoning, and now you can buy one for $1.5 million for a tiny ranch house, you know, it's really not a good deal. And uh, people are leaving, uh, and nobody's moving in. But there are areas in San Jose that could be developed which are off limits. And if those were developed with duplexes and triplexes, that would be a lot more practical at scale than saying, you get to tear down your house in the middle of the block. We'll turn to some questions that we're getting from from our audience. And if any of you here uh, in person have a question, please raise your hand and we'll get to you as as well. Um, I I wanted to to read this one because it's it's, um, consistent with what we were just talking about. Uh, We have a questioner asking, specifically how we should think about single-family zoning and whether or not it should be abolished. You've written critically about this. And um, so our, our questioner is, is saying, um, uh, are our efforts to abolish uh, single-family zoning um, something that should be resisted, or are there instances in which it's a good idea? Well, the, the, the case study on this right now is, I mean, there are these, these movements statewide, but the place where the rubber really hit the road was Minneapolis, where uh, a, a plan called Minneapolis 2040 was passed by a progressive majority in the city council that was elected there a few years ago. And it sold the abolition of single-family zoning. By the way, Minneapolis was not a predominantly single-family. There were some single-family districts, but there's a lot of multifamily housing in Minneapolis, as in many uh, cities with pre-war, pre-World War II districts. But it was sold as single-family zoning is racist. Well, naturally, a lot of people in single-family homes didn't think, in districts didn't think they were racist, and they didn't like being attacked as racists, and it created this tremendous polarization in the city. So I would think that if you emphasized new development or development along uh, main thoroughfares respecting the existing streetscapes that people are invested in could have a diversity of housing types. And we're going to be sympathetic. We're going to ask our planners to be sympathetic to having two to four family houses and maybe uh, four-story apartment buildings on corners. We're going to create opportunities for young people to stay in Minneapolis and for newcomers to find a place in Minneapolis. I think if you talked about it in those positive ways, it wouldn't have polarized the city. Instead, uh, before the, the terrible uh, events uh, in, in the police actions in, in Minneapolis, this was the issue that was actually dividing the city. And I, I desperately don't want the, the kind of incremental changes that I'm talking about in the book to be ideologized, mm-hmm. is that a word, so that it splits the population anymore. I'm hoping it can be a unifier. I think you, it was just, excuse me. Um, well, you hit on something about uh, Greenfield as well. As, you know, in California and a lot of places, urban containment laws are a big factor in, you know, housing prices. And so people want to talk about changing the zoning on the existing footprint. We also need to look at the Greenfield development right. where it is possible to go build another Levittown. Right. Are these places today? Levittown, which is one of your examples in the book, 
was a greenfield development. Manufactured housing. Manuf you, know, you know, assembly line, construction. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I think we have to look at, it's just so much easier to do greenfield development uh, that if we just essentially restrict that, we're not serious. Vanessa? Let me just jump in here. Um, I guess maybe I'll have, I'll take a little more radical position than the rest of the yes. panel. And, um, Toss my hat in the ring here. I actually think that we should um, that we should eliminate single family zoning. Um, you know, I think that upzoning in certain areas to duplexes or triplexes is great. I think we should do that too. I think that these problems on the housing supply um, side of things are so deeply ingrained. There are so many different levels of um, issues. Whether it's that there's process, there's huge process issues, tons of discretionary review, right, that slows things down. It creates uncertainty for people that are trying to redevelop um, lots. If it's, there's design regulations, of course. There are um, density regulations, like lot sizes and like height limits. There's also use regulations, like requiring that, um, you know, no multifamily housing be built in a huge swath of the most desirable part of the city, that type of thing. So I think just changing maybe, you know, one piece of all of these various different issues, which is the use um, the use requirements, um, the Euclidean zoning, and um, you know, up zoning in certain areas from single-family homes to duplexes or triplexes. I think that's great, wonderful. That's directionally the right way to go. I don't know that it will. Sort of to Salim's point earlier, I don't know that that's going to create the radical like overhaul in people's mm -hmm. access to opportunity or the radical change in housing prices. Um, or the downward pressure on housing prices that we need in certain areas of the country. Um, and so I, I guess I, I look at it more as a part of uh, hopefully multi-pronged approach, because um, I think that there's a lot more to uh, deal with here than simply the use requirements. And sort of to that point, um, obviously California, uh, there, SB9 in California, they recently um, were able to sign SB9 into law in California. And that law is going to upzone single family homes across the state to duplex or triplex, to duplex, duplex level. And then they're going to be able to split the lots in half. So, um, so that's great. That's great change. I think people are already saying, well, you know, the floor area requirements are still the same. So people are not going to, in a lot of cases, have an incentive to build a duplex on these lots. So I guess my view is that we need to do a lot of things here in order to really change the tide on housing policy. And upzoning is one great piece of that. And I think we should absolutely do that in conjunction with other policy mm. reform. Um. Jumping off from what Vanessa said, so uh, Oregon was a couple of years ahead in allowing duplexes or fourplexes, depending on city size in most of their single-family zones. And what was interesting is that a year or two after that law passed, the builders, really led by Habitat for Humanity, came back to the state house and said, "Hey, we we love the duplexes and fourplexes, but like we, especially Habitat, have an ownership model, right? As, as you wrote about." And so they have, they have asked the Oregon legislature for a bill that would allow anywhere that you could build a fourplex, say, instead of a fourplex, let us do four small lots, whether those are townhomes or cottages, um, to essentially get the same number of units, the same density, uh, even the same floor area ratio, but allow us to do it this, this sort of simple, fee-simple ownership route. People don't want condos. And then the Habitat for Humanity model can work in those contexts, which I think is a really telling 
um, response from the people who are, you know, we sort of, in our, in our nice um, think tank world, we're like, the builders will build those things and, you know, um, and, and we can change light bulbs, right? So uh, I think it's really in interesting and important to sort of listen to them and say, oh, okay, you want to sell to buyers and you have, a, you have a specific model where the financing, you know, stack from top to bottom works. Let's make that work within our the sort of political goals that we've, um, or the political, political space that we've, we've carved out as possible. Let's actually make a, a building model that works. I, want to, I know you want to get the other questions, and so do I, but just real quick. Vanessa has twice used the term Euclidean zoning, and I have to weigh in on this and say it has nothing to do Sorry. with Euclid and geometry. It has to do with Ambler v. Euclid, which was a 1926 Supreme Court case that legalized uh, uh, municipal zoning in Euclid, Ohio, at the time of which the community in which I grew up, South Euclid, Ohio, was part of Euclid, Ohio, and yet, notwithstanding... Ambler v. Euclid, I was able to grow up in an area of small homes on small lots, very Levittown lots. So mm -hmm. it didn't go so far, this Euclidean <laughs> zoning, to get in the way of my parents buying a very small house. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's good. Yeah, it's good clarification. Yeah, <laughs> you're not familiar with the A little more than you yeah, want yeah. to know. No, but no, yeah. no, that's important. That, that's actually <laughs> an important case. Um, so another question here is what we should do about public housing in our cities. Howard proposes public housing buyouts in his book. How feasible is this? Um, and have any state or local reforms to public housing showed promise? Yes. I'm, and I'm a comment, thanks, great conversation. So <laughs> thank oh, you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. yeah, uh, public housing, because we haven't I spent talk, as much time on that. I could talk a lot about public no, housing. No, my, my poster municipality for public housing is San Bernardino, California, which uh, about it's part of a, a very small experimental uh, program called Moving to Work, which is authorized by the Clinton administration that gave much more flexibility to local public housing authorities about how they spend their, their money. I've been advocating for some time that it be expanded to all public housing authorities, which San Bernardino and also the State Housing Authority of Delaware, to pick a random state, but it's true, adopted... Uh, don't call them time limits, call them transitional aid uh, for new entrants to public housing. Five-year limit in San Bernardino. They've, uh, uh, they've associated with some serious consultants who have tracked people. Increases in employment, increases in income. Effective up and out out of public housing. San Bernardino, California, I really refer people to, they have a great website where they have excellent details on this program. I think we have to change the culture of public housing. Is it practical? to uh, buy people out, I think it's really imperative that we recognize that we've robbed people, especially minorities, of the wealth accumulation. People accuse me of, of, of favoring reparations in this regard, and maybe I do. I think that we ought to recognize that the opportunity cost that they endured from being encouraged to move into public housing as opposed to having you know, a shack in the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, seriously, you'd, be, you'd have done better. Uh, uh, is a real cost, and we ought now to recognize and, and propose to compensate people for uh, by based maybe on how many years they lived in public housing, and especially do this in public housing sites, and there are many around the country that sit on very valuable real estate. So we could do a buyout. People could then take that money, move where they want, maybe have a nest egg, maybe move in with their children. There are many older people in public housing and then sell those lots for new poor sides of town or new rich sides of town, whatever seemed like the best. So is it practical? It's practical if we want it to be. Mm -hmm.
Okay, we are closing in on time here, but I do want to get to this, um, this other question, which is um, um, given that over half of Americans live in the suburbs and a lot of good paying jobs are in the suburbs, is it possible to have a poor side of town in the suburbs? That's, that's really what I'm saying, you know, and I think it has to not be subsidized housing because that's going to be the, the, the course to maximum feasible opposition, right? People sort themselves by socioeconomic status. If you're one step or a half a step down the ladder, it's not going to be the same kind of blowback in suburbs that you see when you want to build subsidized housing, which is just its maximum feasible opposition. So I think that is a good idea. At the same time, you have to look at our outmoded transit models, uh, where you have fixed fixed rail and all these other things that we're st still investing in. People can get to uh, uh, jobs, not necessarily be by living near them, although that would be a good thing too. Yeah, very good. Well, this has been a, a good discussion today, and I thank you all for, for joining us. And um, please do take a look at the book, buy the book. Um, and, Celine's uh, going to hold it up again. Yeah, that's right, exactly, right, <laughs> right there. Um, the and, author's uh, supposed to hold it up, isn't he? That's fine, yeah. It's, no, no, you're the, the host. You're supposed right. to hold it up. <laughs> but yeah, buy the book. Um, send us questions after the fact if we didn't get around to them, and we'll do our best to respond to you even after the event, as we always try to. And uh, thanks again for joining us today, and please join me in thanking Howard and our panelists today. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.